The National Archives podcast series, Early Civil Registration, presented by Audrey Collins. Early Civil Registration. I've specifically given it the dates 1837 to 1875. 1837 being the date when civil registration, the first marriages and deaths, started in England and Wales. And 1875 was when the 1874 Act, which tidied up a lot of the things that were wrong with the original legislation, that made quite a number of changes. So I focused just on the early years under the original sets of rules, some of which were a little conflicting and a little confusing. Now, you might wonder why National Archives has got to talk about civil registration because these aren't our records, these are General Register Office records. Well, yes and no. The birth, marriage and death records, the certificates, yes, they're still held by the General Register Office and that's the only place where you can get them. But the General Register Office, like any other government department, it keeps the records it needs to do its day-to-day job, which in the case of the GRO is registering births, marriages and deaths, issuing certificates but it also deposits the records that it no longer needs. So we have a lot more about the history of the General Register Office than the General Register Office does, again, just like any other government department. And this is something that's fascinated me for a long time. When you start doing family history, in England and Wales at least, you start off using birth, marriage and death certificates. And by the time you've done a bit of that and you you look at the census and you go back into other records, parish records and earlier things and you get completely sucked in, and it's very easy to race through the civil registration bit, just getting the information that you need without stopping to look at why those records are the way they are and how they got to be there. And I decided that this was actually quite interesting, and I couldn't find very much in print about the, you know, the real nuts and bolts of how civil registration came about and how it worked or didn't work. In fact, there was a book published relating to a slightly later date, but it was called A Comedy of Errors by a man called Mike Foster. And he was examining in a lot of detail the marriage indexes and demonstrated how they were deficient. And he was comparing the the indexes with the actual registers which are held by the GRO in Southport. And uh, he came to some interesting conclusions, but he raised a lot of questions and he made some quite good educated guesses most of which were wrong, but that wasn't his fault. It was because the information that he needed wasn't at the GRO up in Southport, where they issued certificates from. It was here, in the National Archives. Having the advantage over him that I don't live in New Zealand, I live within reach of the National Archives. That was before I came to work here, but even then I still live within reach. So I was in a position to do a lot of research, looking in a lot of records deposited by the Registrar General's office and also by the Home Office, which had oversight of the General Register Office to start with. So what I want to cover in this session is a bit about civil registration and the background and what might have been, how it got to be there in the first place, a few common misconceptions and I hope some interesting facts because you can't go rummaging in records with people's correspondence and memos for decades and decades and decades without coming across a few interesting bits and pieces. In 1832, there was a bill, and it was just a bill, didn't become an act, didn't get through Parliament. And then in 1834, there was another one. And then in 1836, there was another one, and this is the one that got through. Now, that's a lot of text. It looks complicated, and it is. That's rather the point. The 1832 bill, just for the registration of births, was amended by committee. 
Same thing happened to the 1834 bill to establish a general register, a general register, births, deaths, and marriages. That was amended by committee and then amended on recommitment. And then the 1836 one, again, that was generally mucked about with and changed on at least three occasions. And it's reasonably well known that this 1836 legislation was rather imperfect. But it got through because the alternative was losing it altogether. Now, the background to this is that for several decades, there had been moves to establish a secular, neutral, non-church system of registration of births, marriages and deaths. This had already been done in some other countries. One of the things Napoleon was good for was he did set up a fantastically good system of civil registration in France. So what you really hope is that your English ancestors managed to find their way across the channel to die because you'll get a much better death certificate there than you would if they stayed in England. Civil registration was not a completely new idea, but it had some resistance. The people who were in favour of it were, uh, the, on the whole, the liberal or Whig tendency, nonconformists, because prior to that, the Church of England, as the established church, pretty much had a monopoly. Church of England registers had and still have a special legal status that others don't obviously have. Even if you are a Methodist or Baptist and you keep fantastically good, detailed, meticulous registers, they still didn't have the legal status of the worst, sloppiest, most blotted, messy, full of mistakes Church of England register. Because it belonged to the established church, it automatically had a legal status. And that is why, before civil registration, you will quite often find people whom you know or suspect to be of a non-conformist persuasion, possibly Roman Catholic, and even in some cases Jewish, registering their, the births of their children in the Church of England, having them baptised, probably standing there with their fingers crossed behind their backs, because that was the only way to get legal status. Now, for most people, this wasn't terrifically important. You didn't have to produce evidence of your identity and your age in the way that we do today, practically on a daily basis. But in some cases, it was very important. If you were trying to establish legitimacy or uh, an inheritance, it was really important that you had legal documentation. And as more and more people belonged to religious groups which were not the Church of England and had some ideological opposition to the Church of England, the church was sort of losing its grip, rather. So the records that had been used, up to a point for statistical purposes as well, if you wanted to know roughly what the population was before there was a proper census, you could get some idea from returns from baptisms, marriages and burials. But this was known to be imperfect, particularly in areas where the, the Church of England was not particularly strong. So the West Country, parts of Lancashire and Yorkshire and the West Midlands and Wales, of course. So it made a lot of sense to have a, a civil neutral system that everybody used, regardless of their religious denomination. But as you'd expect, there was a lot of opposition to this, principally from the Church of England. Church of England is not stupid. It knew the thin end of a wedge when they saw it coming. Uh, and they were absolutely right, of course, because when it had the monopoly of legal registration, there were fees to be had from this, quite apart from the fact that many uh, Church of England clergy genuinely believed that to do anything other than have your children baptised and to get married or have people buried by Church of England rights, anything other than that was a dreadful, heathen, immoral thing to do. 
but an awful lot of them also had an eye to the income. And they were quite right, because if you look in about 1800, you'll see that the Church of England runs a lot of things. It's in charge of probate, it's in charge of looking after the poor, it's in charge of registration. And a hundred years later, all of these things, and a few others as well, they were all in the hands of secular uh, authorities. So they did have a point. So there was a lot of opposition from the Church of England, and the Church of England, of course, was very well represented in Parliament, particularly in the House of Lords, which had a number of bishops in it, but also there was a, a sort of inbuilt conservative Tory majority in the House of Lords. The Church of England was often called the Tory party at prayer, and the reverse was true in some senses. The House of Lords uh, was the Church of England in Parliament. House of Commons, on the other hand, that flipped back and forth between Whigs and Tories. And if you care to read Hansard, which I personally find fascinating, but I'll understand if you don't, you can look at all the, uh, the discussions and the debates that went on throughout the 1830s and to, to a certain extent earlier than that in an attempt to get a bill through. Now, the other thing that you need to know is that nowadays legislation has to be passed by the, the House of Commons. I mean, the House of Commons has, has, uh, has a real primacy and there's, there's some fascinating stuff about that, but I'll spare you that. But in the early 19th century, a bill could be originated in either House of Commons, but it had to pass in both. Now, this didn't mean that it could go in uh, indefinitely back and forth and back and forth. It was a sort of three strikes and you're out. So if you, if you originated a bill in the Commons and then it went to the Lords and the Lords mangled it out of rec all recognition, which is pretty much what happened with the earlier attempts, and then it came back to the Commons, well, you could try and fix all the stuff that they'd messed up, then you'd send it back, then they'd mess it up again. Well, you couldn't keep on doing this indefinitely. So in 1836, the, the bill that came back from the Lords, it had been mucked about with. But after all these attempts, the Whig government at the time decided, OK, well, it's better than nothing. If we don't pass it, we'll lose it altogether and we'll have to start again. We can sort it out later. As it happens later, was 1874, and even that didn't fix all of it. But that was the major piece of legislation that tidied up a lot of the problems from the 1836 legislation. But that is the reason why it's a very imperfect piece of legislation, and in places it's, it's quite ambiguous. One of the sneaky little things that the Lords put in was um, originally all marriage was to be by certificate in that you would go to a registrar get a certificate of your intention to marry, and then you would have your marriage performed either in the register office or, more likely, in the church of your choosing, whether it's the Church of England or a nonconformist church, which is where you couldn't have been married in a nonconformist church before 1837. Um, Jews and Quakers were exempt, but everybody else, uh, no matter what their religious persuasion, had to marry in the Church of England for it to be legal between 1753 and 1837. So the idea was to make this completely secular, that you could have a religious marriage, but your uh, notice um, was like a sort of secular bans, if you like, was to be from the registrar. Well, the Lords didn't like this one bit. So not only did they put, in, put back in bans, which was fair enough, so if you wanted to get married in a church, you could have the bans called on three successive Sundays. That's what people have been doing for generations. Perfectly good idea. But they went one step further. Uh, and said, well, if you're getting married in a civil ceremony uh, or, or in a non-Church of England ceremony, 
you should still have your, your circular bands read somewhere instead of just pinned on the notice board in the register office. So they put in a clause so that the, uh, uh, these notices of marriage should be read out in a public place. Now, when registration was set up, it rather sensibly uh, didn't set up a completely new framework. It used an existing one, and that existing framework was that of poor law unions, which had been set up in 1834. And they were groups of parishes which were actually about the right size and, and made perfect sense to have them as registration districts. Therefore, if you gave notice of marriage in the very early years of registration and you were getting married in a non-conformist church or in the register office, instead of having your bans read out in the church, because you weren't getting married in the church, they would be read out at the meetings of the boards of guardians of the poor law. Well, that made the um, civil marriage a really attractive uh, prospect. In fact, a civil I mean, register office marriage is now a very commonplace. Um, and incidentally, it is register office in England. It's a registry office in Scotland. If it's a registry office, it is not in England. And I've even seen a sign in a town which I shall not name where the official sign to the register office says registry office. And it's only a matter of time before I go there with a little pot of white paint and change it. Um, so register office. In fact, register office marriages were very, very rare. The main purpose of the, the civil registrars of marriage was that they would be present at marriages conducted in Catholic churches, Baptist churches, you name it. There were very, very few which were pure civil marriages. Um, there are st statistics were kept, and the number is absolutely minute. So it's really quite rare. If someone was married in a register office in the 19th century, it's extremely unusual. 20th century, it becomes common as anything. But in the 19th century, it's pretty rare. The General Register Office became, uh, after many years, part of the um, Office of Population Censuses and Surveys, and then the Office for National Statistics. And very early on, it acquired a, very much a, a statistical role. But in the very, very earliest years, the statistics were not the prime concern. There was no statistical branch. When the General Register Office was set up, uh, there was the records branch, which actually dealt with gathering the information and recording it. There was an accounts branch, which dealt with the money, because everybody needs one of those, and a correspondence branch, which dealt with all the correspondence. That's kind of obvious. Statistical branch came on quite soon, but it wasn't there in the original um, setup. After only a couple of decades, you know, the statistical tale was very much wagging the registration dog. Um, but it wasn't part of the original idea. And although, as a family historian, we often say that the records that we use, they were created for some purpose or other, and that purpose was probably not um, the education and edification of the modern family historian, uh, but for some other purpose, often something to do with money. Civil registration is, is almost an exception to that. And if you look at some of the discussions in Parliament and, and the, uh, the proposals, one of the reasons it was set up was to prove relationships and genealogy. Now, the big difference is that, well, that's exactly what we use it for. Why doesn't it work quite as well as we want it to? The difference is that when we use general register office records, we're using them for research. We're trying to find things out. 
One of the original ideas of setting up a system of registration was not so that you could find things out, but so that you could prove what you already knew. So that you could prove you were the legitimate offspring of A and B, that you were entitled to this or that inheritance, that you were legally married. So it did have genealogy and family relationships in mind, but just not in the way that we actually use them nowadays. And they could never have dreamed of that. And that, I think, is why the, um, the notorious 1836 legislation um, has the dreaded C word in its certification, which means that the only way to get at the information in the registers is to buy a certified copy of the entry. Scotland and Ireland, which came later, you can get uncertified copies uh, or an extract from the register. But the English legislation insisted on certified. And that's why they cost so much. Because um, producing a photocopy is comparatively cheap. Producing a certified copy on special secure paper um, and every single certificate blank has to be accounted for, that's what makes it terribly expensive. And if, uh, as occasionally happens, a registrar's book is stolen or goes missing, all hell breaks loose because these are potentially very valuable documents because they've all got serial numbers and they've got an official stamp. Um, so the certification was there so that you could get official certification of your birth marriage or someone's death um, in the way that you may not have been able to before if you weren't a member of the Church of England. Good intentions, unforeseen consequences. Now, I mentioned that there was some opposition to it, and a largely from the Church of England. It wasn't exclusively from them. Uh, there were other people. Now, some of the opposition was very high level. It was in the House of Lords, and some of the bishops were extremely uh, vociferous in their opposition and carried on with their opposition after civil registration was done and dusted uh, and it was in, in force. And there was a, a rearguard action by certain members of the clergy, by no means all, and a very small minority, who did their best to put a spoke in the wheel of civil registration. There were a couple of places in particular. Um, if, if you have ancestors that were born in Wolverhampton in the very early years, and I mean sort of 1837 to very early 1840s, and you can't find their births, you, you may choose to blame the Reverend Boyle. The Reverend Boyle was a thorough nuisance as far as registration was concerned. Um, we have boxfuls and boxfuls of home office correspondence, which is a wonderful read. You know, pick a box at random and you'll find something interesting in it almost. Um, and the, there is a letter, the, the very first one I've come across was from the 30th of October, 1837. So registration had barely been going five minutes. And the, the registrar of Wolverhampton is already writing to say that, uh, complain about people in one particular parish where the Reverend Boyle officiates, where people are refusing to register the births of their children. They're not just not being sure how this thing works. They're actually refusing and very, very often at his instigation. And his name crops up several times. Sometime later, a year or so on, when the Reverend Boyle has filled up his first book of marriages in the new marriage register books, the local registrar has a dickens of a job trying to get the thing out of him. He was, he was very, very obstructive. And there were a few others. The, the correspondence in those early two or three years is dotted with letters from registrars 
saying roughly uh, most people are fine now they've, they've got the hang of this thing most people are perfectly willingly come along and they register their children and they, they bury their dead with a proper death certificate but there are a few places and they often identify one particular parish in their districts and everybody else is fine but this one particular clergyman uh, is, is causing all sorts of a fuss um, and Reverend Boyle, I think, was the worst. He's the most prominent in the correspondence, but he was by no means the only one. There were also, rather more surprisingly, some doctors who refused. So, some doctors were also coroners. And although in the case of an inquest into a death, the, the, officially the informant of a death is the coroner, but some of the coroners took great exception to this uh, because they said that... Some of the information which goes on a death certificate, which is relationship and age, it's not necessarily things which it is the coroner's job to provide. So there were a few, again, very, very few. Um, it's, it's, it's in single figures, the ones of, that I'm aware of anyway. Um, so there were a few who just objected. I think there are always some people who just object on principle to anything that's new, no matter what their, their line of business um, and most of the people objecting were, were Church of England clergy. Uh, although I have to say that the great majority were absolutely fine. But there were a few troublesome ones. Um, and occasionally you get just other people. Uh, sometimes you'll just get one person who's influential in a town or a village. And he might be the pub landlord or somebody who's just, just the local bigwig. And if he just takes, again, civil registration, uh, then... Um, he could cause an awful lot of trouble. And the correspondence is absolutely littered with examples of this. Now, it is just dotted around the country, and the big misconception that people often have, and you will probably have read this in books, often written by people who really should know better, uh, which is that if a birth uh, was before 1875, it might not be registered because registration wasn't compulsory. This is not true. Registration was compulsory. The difference that was made by the 1874 Act was that the, by that Act, the onus was put on the parents uh, or, or the, the, the person registering the birth. Uh, prior to that, the onus was on the registrar to get the information. However, if you refuse to give information, or as in some cases people gave the information but refused to sign the register because they had some principled objection... Um, they could be prosecuted, and people were prosecuted. There was one prosecution at Sheffield, and it was in all the newspapers, and actually handbills were made uh, detailing this uh, to distribute to waverers throughout the country. So um, registration was compulsory. It's just that the phrasing of it was slightly different. And in fact, the General Register Office's own statistics bear out the fact that in that first that period, 1837 up to 1874, the overall proportion of births not registered was about 7%. And that's 7% over the whole period. So it will be concentrated in certain areas and it will be heavily weighted towards the beginning of that period. But overall, it is about 7%. Now, my, my, my friend and former colleague and co-author... Dave Annell and I, we've had this crusade. You know, it's Dave and Audrey's crusade to persuade people that this 1874 thing 
um, is all nonsense. And as researchers who had spent many, many years going through the birth, marriage and death indexes, we just did not have a, a failure rate that was high enough uh, to, uh, to, to chime with, with these sort of uh, doom and gloom things that people say, oh, no, this, um, a lot of births weren't registered. Well, we found most of the ones that we were looking for, and that's what we used to do all day, every day sometimes. Um, and then again, when we actually researched it and we looked into the Registrar General's reports and the correspondence, the actual evidence is that if, you don't, if a birth can't be found before 1875, it is possible that it is not registered, but it is much more likely that there is some other reason that you can't find it. So there, and at every available opportunity, uh, we try to get that into our, anything that we write or, or talk, if it's even faintly relevant. So there you are. Here ended that particular lesson. Now the registrars. I'm very interested in registrars. Um, they were an interesting bunch of people. They were, as I said, the country was divided into poor law unions, and this framework uh, was used for registration because it actually fitted it very well. Each registration district was in the charge of a superintendent registrar. And the superintendent registrar's job was offered to the clerk to the board of guardians of the poor law union. And almost all of them took it. There were a few who didn't. I think these were sometimes men who were close to retirement, didn't want to take on any extra jobs. But the great majority um, were superintendent registrar was also the... Um, clerk to the Board of Guardians, and was also a solicitor in most cases, because that, that was a job that required some legal expertise. And the superintendent registrars, they were just in charge. They didn't do any actual registering. They countersigned things, and they managed things, and they collected things, and they sent them on, and they were the, um, the, the line of communication between the General Register Office and the registration service, as it became. The people who actually did the work on the ground were the registrars of births and deaths. And each one of those would operate within a sub-district, within uh, the registration district as a whole. Registrars of marriage. There would be at least one, and sometimes only one, and sometimes several, within a district. And the registrar of marriages could register marriages anywhere at all within that whole district. And as I said, mostly they were going out to non-Church of England places of worship uh, to conduct the legal part uh, of, of the ceremony. And all of these people could have deputies. They didn't all. Uh, in the very early years, if you look, there's a thing called the Official List, which was an annual directory of registration officers and all sorts of other interesting information. And in the very early years, Quite a number of them had no deputies. As the years go on, if you look in the later 19th century and then into the 20th, you will find that pretty much everybody has got a, a, a deputy. Um, again, this was one of the odd little bits of the legislation uh, that needed to be tidied up, uh, which was that originally there was a, a deputy could take over in the case of the, um, the death of a registrar, but not if the registrar resigned. So that was, a, you know, that was an odd little thing. That got tidied up, but it was the sort of thing nobody thought of when it was started off. The registrars themselves, I mentioned that the 
clerks to the Board of Guardians um, were usually superintendent registrars. They were not salaried. They weren't salaried until the 1920s. They were paid on piecework. So it depended on the number of um, events that they registered and certificates that they issued, and sometimes other duties. They, were, um, they, they might be asked to gather extra statistics, particularly in, in times of epidemic and so on. So this was all basically on a piecework. Most of them had some other job. Very many of them were poor law union officials. Again, it worked out very well. Many registrars of births and deaths were also um, relieving officers because they were the people who were on the ground. It fitted in very well with their day-to-day job. In the earlier years, in particular, a number of them were also medical men. But lots and lots of other occupations were represented. Um, I've got a table that was compiled in 1881 and you get all sorts of things. You get the people that you'd expect. You get the poor law union officials. You get people who are in other sort of medical and legal related jobs. But you get farmers, shopkeepers, blacksmiths, um, all sorts of, you know, and even very, very occasionally I've seen a labourer. Uh, so pretty much anybody um, could, could be a registrar. Uh, the, ultimately, the, the, the government is paying, and it's all done through the poor law union. And there was some discussion about this as well, again, about unforeseen consequences. Because this was based on the poor law union uh, setup, there were a few places which did not fall into this setup. These were non-parochial places, uh, things like the places like the Tower of London and various sort of peculiars that didn't fit nicely into this system. Um, and there was some debate and discussion about who actually... Um, paid because they, it was all, again, unintended consequences. It's what happens when you have a system which essentially is bottom-up rather than top-down. Because even the poor law unions, they'd grown out of the old parish system, which um, had been adapted over centuries to various local um, circumstances. Uh, so you, you get all the, all the lovely little oddities and anomalies going on. Competition for the job of registrar could be very, very fierce. In really busy, heavily populated, built-up areas, city centres like Liverpool and London and Manchester, uh, you would have lots of people wanting the jobs. And because this was all done through the poor law system, again, this is another odd little anomaly. The uh, registrars were appointed by the poor law unions. But... If they proved unsatisfactory or downright dishonest or criminal, only the Registrar-General could sack them. So that just made for a really smooth-running bureaucracy, as you can imagine. But the great thing about the, um, the being done through the poor law unions is that in our wonderful, wonderful collection of poor law union correspondence, you will often find lots and lots of applications for jobs and testimonials. And um, as... Uh, even as it is today, sometimes the best, um, juiciest jobs never get advertised on the open market. As soon as somebody gets a sniff that there's going to be a vacancy, they're in. Writing, you know, I've heard there's going to be a vacancy. Can I please uh, you know, put myself forward? And people have testimonials and references. And sometimes you can get absolute goldmine of information about people applying for jobs as registrars and also poor law union jobs. Sometimes you get absolutely nothing at all. 
Um, but I have seen some wonderful sets of correspondence in there. And then um, you ha often have several candidates all with, with their wonderful qualities being described in detail. And then after the job's been um, given to one of them, you get all the rest of them um, bitching and complaining about why it was unfair and they should have got the job. Uh, so there's lots and lots of uh, wonderful stuff in there. Lots of, it's very, very human, very personal. Um, but it really gives you a flavour of just how um, popular they could be. Well, that's in the big city areas where you were going to make a really good income. But in some places, little places out in the country, it was actually very, very difficult to recruit registrars at all, sometimes even superintendent registrars, because the amount of income they could conceivably get would be so small uh, that it just wasn't worth their while. So in the very, very early days of civil registration, in 1837 itself, you will find that there are one or two um, registration districts which sort of disappear. And I think the very first ones, um, the first note I've got is in August 1837. So it's barely been up and running a month. And the district, the Poor Law Union of Avington, which had been a registration district, was then amalgamated in with Winchester. Poor Law Union of Welling was amalgamated with Hatfield, and so on and so on. There were quite a number of these in the first two or three years where it just proved impossible uh, to recruit people to be registrar, to be superintendent registrars, and sometimes actual registrars on the ground. And because, of course, they were paid on piecework, there were statistics gathered, and there are some tables uh, showing how little some of these people earned and how much some of them earned. Um, it was in very, very variable. So um, registration districts and their names, even those aren't set. They, they change remarkably frequently. Uh, incidentally, you, you will find sometimes that registration district boundaries change, and you don't get a, a nice sort of thoroughgoing overhaul very often, but you get lots and lots of odd little piecemeal changes. And this is because if um, a boundary was, was redrawn somebody would probably have to be uh, compensated for you know, the, the work, you know, the income he was going to be losing. Uh, so they tended to do this when a registrar died or retired uh, and they, they could rejig and boundaries with, without um, causing lots of complicated compensation. Now, this is George Graham. George Graham is my hero. If you, um, people often say, if you could go back in time and meet a historical figure, who would you meet? I would want to go and meet George Graham. I like him a lot. He was the second Registrar General. The first Registrar General was the rather beautiful young man on the very first slide, Thomas Henry Lister, who was also a romantic novelist, looked like one too. And as befits a romantic novelist, he died rather picturesquely of tuberculosis in 1842, when he was 42, and registration hadn't been going for very long. So Lister was the one who set it up, and he had a pretty good vision of roughly what was required Although, of course, nobody, him included, had any idea of the numbers and the volume of work. And that was rather the point. Because nobody had accurate figures of births, marriages and deaths, we needed to set up a new system. And in practice, it's always been running to keep up. Um, as early as 1838, when they were just compiling the, first, the indexes from the first couple of quarters, um, the correspondence with the Treasury... And it's the Treasury. Obviously holds all the purse strings. You need the Treasury's permission 
to do practically anything. So no, all human life is in Treasury correspondence. It really is. Um, and from those very early days, General Register Office was asking for more money from the Treasury. Please, can I have more money to employ more staff? Uh, or can I have more money to pay overtime to the staff I've already got? Because the work is piling up faster than we can process it. And the system that was set up, uh, you know, the actual nuts and bolts of getting information from an entry in a parish register or in a registrar's book to the centre to be indexed and then put in books and certificates issued, the system that was devised was actually pretty good, given the limitations of Victorian technology. The problem was that they never had quite enough uh, staff and enough money to run it efficiently. Now, Lister was quite a good ideas man, but he rather lacked attention to detail, I think. And when Graham came in, uh, he had previously been um, a major in the Indian Army. And he knew a thing or two about man management. And uh, you know, he was suitably cynical. And you know, the, the, the first thing that he did was he had a look at, well, this is this system that, that's been set up and it looks okay. Okay, where are the weak spots? If I were going to defraud it, what would I go for? I'm sure that's what he was thinking, because one of the things he homed in on very quickly was the, uh, the office keeper, uh, called Mr., who was called Mr. Rose. He rather suspected that Mr. Rose was claiming a bit too much in expenses, and this was because there had been no audit trail set up. He seemed to be claiming a phenomenal amount of money for postage, which seemed rather more than was reasonable. So what Graham did was he sent um, inquirers to all the post offices within uh, walking distance of Somerset House and um, asked how much they had taken in payment for postage from Mr. Rose and the, and the General Register Office. And the amount that came back um, was significantly lower than the amount that Mr. Rose had been claiming. Um, now, much to Graham's annoyance, the Treasury Solicitor, um, which is possibly one of the most cautious organisations on the face of the earth, decided that there was not sufficient evidence to prosecute. So um, it, he had to content himself with um, accepting Mr Rose's resignation. And anyway, Mr Rose was then believed to have um, taken himself off to Australia, which was probably quite a wise move. But that was pretty much the first thing that he did. He looked to see where the weaknesses were in the system and got them sorted. Now, he was in post for very nearly 40 years. Um, it was actually about 37, 38. And that is much the longest of any registrar general. Uh, the next after that was um, something like 15 to 20 years is about the next longest period. And nowadays they, they you know, rotated at much faster rate. Uh, so he really uh, got stuck in. So although Lister set up the system, it was Graham who did his best to make it work. Um, and he worked in partnership with William Farr, who was the um, eventually the, the superintendent of statistics and finally deputy registrar general. And Farr was a statistician, and he was a member of the what was then the London Statistical Society. And all the um, the statistics that were gathered, you have somebody has to design to, to decide what information to gather and how to present it once you have gathered it. And that was William Farr. 
and they had a terrific partnership. Um, and uh, Farr just wanted to get lots and lots of detail. And he, uh, he, he would have been a hopeless registrar general. When uh, Graham finally retired, he was sort of expected to be the successor, but he would have been clueless at it. He would have been a rotten manager. Um, he was a fantastic statistician. The two men worked very, very nicely in partnership. Um, but what, what Graham had to do was he had to manage this whole business, and this involved uh, you know, man management. And it, it was, in, in his day, they were all men. Uh, there were no women employed in the General Register Office until around about 1900, give or take. I mean, obviously, there were cleaners. You know. uh, but in, in, you know, the people who did the actual, you know, the, the clerks, um, they were... They were another interesting body of men. Now, in the ver I, I am such a sad act that I have in my possession a spreadsheet which I have compiled, a lot of it from one particular document, which has the names um, and in many cases the dates of birth of everybody who worked for the General Register Office from uh, 1836 when it was set up until the early 1880s. Some of the very first ones were what you would call agency temps. They were not established civil servants, although many of them became permanent. Uh, there was a firm of uh, law stationers called Grosvenor and Chater. And as well as supplying legal stationery, they also hired out um, temporary office workers. And quite a number of the, the people who compiled the indexes in the very, very early years were actually... Uh, uh, temporary office workers from Grosvenor and Chater. Now, the picture there, that is not a GRO clerk. Uh, I haven't got a picture of a GRO clerk from that period, though I have got one from much later. Um, but it, it's about right for the period. It's from the 1830s, so that's close enough. It's actually a lawyer's clerk, which is pretty much similar. And uh, he's eating at his desk, and I know that the GRO clerks did that because at some point in one of the, um, um, the ledgers I found... Uh, there was a note saying that you know, gentlemen were, were asked to refrain from eating in the office except between the hours of 10 and 12. Uh, there was also another one, uh, Circular went around, asked them to refrain from reading newspapers in the office. Um, now, the working conditions in Somerset House were not ideal. As a building, it's magnificent to look at, uh, but in those days, it was often it was too cold in winter, too hot in summer, um, the bit of it that was really close to the Thames, which was actually not, not occupied by the General Register Office, but that got a bit whiffy. Um, I think it was in the 18, early 1840s, I think it was the year of the Great Stink, um, when you know, the Thames was pretty much just an open sewer. And there was at least one infestation of rats in Somerset House that I'm aware of. So it, it wasn't an ideal working environment. And the staff were not always ideal. It wasn't until 1871 with the Civil Service Commission that you had any idea of um, recruiting people on the, on the, on the basis of, of, of merit. Um, and it, it was, a lot of it was done sort of rather by patronage. Um, I mean, List of the first Registrar General was, the I think, the brother-in-law um, of the Home Secretary who appointed him. And George Graham was the brother of the Home Secretary who appointed him. Now, he was a brilliant choice, but the fact that his brother was Home Secretary was um, very helpful. Um, you know, it was just lucky that the home, the home Secretary had a competent brother to appoint. So the staff weren't necessarily the people that you would have ideally chosen. And being a clerk in early Victorian England was not always a great thing to be. 
because you had a certain standard of uh, appearance and dress to keep up, but not really the income to do, do it with. Your artisan, craftsman, engineer neighbours might be, um, you know, socially, you know, oh, people who get their hands dirty, socially below you, but they might be you know, earning twice as much. So a lot of clerks um, had terrible problems with debt. There's lots and lots of instances of clerks, particularly in the 1850s and 60s, uh, who are getting into awful trouble with debt. And as a res uh, result, they're going um, absent without leave from the office, in, in one case because he was in debtor's prison, so that's why he couldn't turn up for work. And in another case, he wasn't in debtor's prison, uh, but the, uh, you know, the, the, the broker's men who were after him they didn't know where he lived because you can move your lodgings, but they knew where he worked. So he knew that if he you know, came to Somerset House, they, they'd, be, they'd be lurking in the, in the, behind one of the pillars at the entrance. So this, so this was somebody else's unexplained absence. So you had all, all sorts of um, things going on there. Um, and this is why I, I think Graham was, was a, a pretty good boss, considering what he had to deal with. He was actually very compassionate. He let people have a second chance. You didn't get a third chance, but he did, from his correspondence, you see that he did his level best um, if somebody was a bit out of line. Um, he wouldn't sack them straight away, he would give them a chance to mend their ways, but sometimes um, they, they just had to go. Um, and uh, you know, his, his correspondence reflects that. He was also very good at petitioning the Treasury on many occasions when somebody um, who was maybe getting a bit too old to carry on working but had no pension. Um, he was often petitioning the Treasury to get gratuities for them, and he really um, seemed to care quite a lot about his staff, although I'm sure he was, he was obviously a very stern disciplinarian when, when needed. So he had quite a lot to deal with, and I think he did it rather well. There was one particular man who actually sort of outlasted him. He was much younger, and I think he was still in post into the 1890s. But he was one of the messengers... Um, and George Graham's correspondence is peppered with irritating, irritated comments about this man. But on the other hand, he did give him a really good reference when he applied for a job somewhere else, although that might well have been because he wanted to get rid of him. <laughs> now, the indexes. This is a page from one of the early indexes. Up to, from 1837 up to 1865, the indexes were handwritten on parchment, which is very, very durable stuff. Now, these volumes were still in daily use until 2007, when they were finally withdrawn from the shelves at the Family Records Centre. They had mostly been rebound many, many times, but the original pages were still in use in most cases. And before they were all taken away, I photographed a few um, and this particular one, it's not just, oh, look, there's one of the lovely old indexes, because it is. It illustrates something quite interesting. When the, uh, the indexing was done, the, the, the information was taken from the, the, the copies that were sent in by the register officers, and they were copied onto slips, the, the bit that was going to go in the index, and then the slips were all sorted. So you had the people who copied um, the... the the transcribers who copied the information onto the onto large pages, which were then cut up into strips, and then you had the sorters who sorted the slips, and then you had the indexers who actually wrote up these pages. Now, this was written on parchment, as I've said, which is durable. It's also very expensive. 
So when they were given um, a, you know, a batch of, uh, of indexing to write up, they were given their um, allotted, um, actually it was eight pages. And if they messed it up, not only did they not get paid uh, for the work that they'd done, again, they, you can't pay sorters on piecework, but people who are uh, writing, writing names on pieces of paper, that's measurable. You can do that on piecework, uh, or task work, as it was then called. So you know, this was a big thing in the GRO. They love paying people on piecework. Um, but if, if you went too fast and you were careless and you made mistakes, not only did you have to do it again before you got paid, you, would get, you could be fined for the, the value of this parchment that you'd ruined. Now, I don't think that happened very often because they were under such time constraints um, that it wasn't really practical. And what you may just about be able to see there, I can because I know it's there, is that at the top of uh, sometimes every eighth page, you will sometimes see in pencil the initials or the name of the clerk who actually wrote that page. And then, uh, and it's just above the second column, you can see again in pencil the word checked and the initials of the senior clerk who did that. Now, given time, I could probably tell you who these people were. Uh, but the point is that, contrary to what some people think, the work was checked. But again, it, was done, it, it wasn't always done as quickly uh, and as thoroughly as, as would have been ideal because it was piling up. Now, the reason that I don't think many people were ever fined, unless they made a total hash of it, was that you will often see corrections. In this case, this would not be the indexer's fault. It would have been the sorter's fault that he's written a load of names. And then the next slip should have actually been a few slips back. So you get things where you've got arrows and um, inserts. And sometimes you'll find there's a whole block of names is actually out of place. And you'll get extra names which are written in, things crossed out, various alterations. And I think if, that, if it were possible, the, uh, the, the alterations were done on the parchment. And even occasionally, um, I have seen ones where a name has plainly been wrong. It's been scratched out. And I mean literally scratched out because you scratch off the top of the surface of the parchment, which has got the ink on it, and then written in again. But the writing's all fuzzy because it's written on the porous bit because the top's been taken off. That's pretty rare, uh, but I have actually seen a few of those. As I said, I used to do this all day, every day, so I know. Um, but that, that, that was the process. The work was done. They were always under pressure, and the work was checked but not always as thoroughly as it might be. And they were aware that there were mistakes, but they just did not have time to go back and check them. Now, that's just a, a, a real overview. It's just scratching the surface of stuff, some of the stuff that I have found. But what I want to finish with is just, where did I find all this? Well, I've mentioned that I found a lot of it in the National Archives. The Home Office was the parent department, um, and Home Office Correspondence, HO45 in particular, there's a lot in. But there's, there's quite a lot in various Home Office series. MH12, which is Poor Law Union's Correspondence, this is where you have all this wonderful thing, the toing and froing, and, and the, the debates about um, you know, whether somebody should have been appointed, whether somebody should be sacked. And occasionally they were. And finally, in, in the RG series, um, I once had a job interview. It was actually for a promotion, which I got. And I was asked, what's your favourite document? 
and I had an instant answer. And since you ask, um, it was RG2098, which is a sort of digest of information um, compiled from the, those first sort of 50, roughly 50 years of registration, which plainly somebody put all this information together um, as a sort of a useful um, handy reference volume in the GRO. And that's where I found an awful lot of this wonderful stuff. But newspapers are also very good. And the main highlights here, British Newspaper Archive really now is the place to go. And that's a subscription site. But a lot of that is also, it, it's not quite such a sophisticated search engine, but you can also search most of it on um, Find My Past if you've got the sort of top-end subscription to Find My Past. They have included the, um, the, the newspapers in there as well. The Google News Archive, um, Google sort of abandoned this a number of years ago as an ongoing project, but the stuff that they've done is still there. And that, that's well worth having a look at, look at. So you do get quite a surprising lot in there about uh, registration. At the bottom, I mentioned the Times Digital Archive and the British Library 19th Century Newspapers. Now, these are ones I don't have URLs for those because those are things that you'll get through. That they're institutional subscriptions. So we have access to those here, and a lot of libraries um, and archives do. You may be able to get access to those through your own public library. I know I do with my local library. My card um, gives me access even from home to those two. British Library 19th Century Newspapers um, is, is much, much smaller than the, the British Newspaper Archive. Pretty much everything that's in that 19th century collection is also in the Newspaper Archive. Um, but there, there's, there, there was quite... A, when I started doing the research, there was no British Newspaper Archive. So that was where I was looking. But possibly the best place is this. My, one of my very favourite websites, Histpop. Uh, online historical population reports website. And this is um, really anything you want to know about registration and the census. Um, it's got all the General Register Office um, annual reports, if you like that sort of thing. I do. Um, there's a lot of census material in there, but also quite a lot of documentation, quite a lot of our National Archives documents have been scanned and are online there, things to do with the background to registration and said an awful lot about the census, which was also run uh, by the General Register Office on the same boundaries. But as well as the, uh, the actual documents, there's a lot of um, sort of editorial material, background chapters um, written by the, the people who set the website up. Um, basically, it was the University of, uh, of Essex. It's a really, really useful website. The thing to do is to go into it. You, you can search by keyword, which is all very well. I prefer to go into browse, and then you can see what's there. But if you go into browse, you'll see that there's uh, lots of um, menus that you can open up all about registration and census, um, and um, you can read all the reports, and it, it's just... Oh, I, I, can, I, I can lose myself in that, and I sometimes do. This talk was recorded on the 6th of March 2014 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>